You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Uh, copper. Nowhere to go but up. The world needs this stuff and an awful lot more of it, and we're ready to give it right now. Forget the short-term supply demand, six weeks, six months. If you think of this thing from anywhere from two to 10 years, I really think that copper will be one of the true limiting factors to the world achieving its ambition uh, for you know, sustainability shifts. I just don't think without something really dramatic happening that there's anywhere near enough of it ready to come to the market. Hi guys, this is Brian Lenny of Mining Stock Education and JuniorStockReview.com. Uh, today I have with me one of the top minds in the resource sector, Brian Dalton, CEO of Altius Minerals. Brian, it's great to have you. Hey, thank you very much. I don't know about that top mind comment, but uh, I guess uh, we, we'll see, eh? Well, that's in my view. My view, <laughs> we're the top minds. Um, so the first question, uh, late last year, we saw delays with Marathon's EA for their Valentine Lake project in Newfoundland. Uh, more recently, we've seen the debacle with Rio 2's Phoenix Gold project in Chile. Uh, there's a long list of risks of mining project development. Um, environmental permitting uh, appears to be one that's climbing rather quickly. In your view, where does environmental permitting rank in the list of risks uh, to mining project development? Wow, it's extraordinarily high. I mean, I'd go beyond that to you know social licensing and you know, the whole complex. And now you add on just you know growing sort of demands from communities and governments around shares of benefits and those sorts of things. And, and ultimately it's, it's all very, um, front of, you know, permitting is, is it's binary. It's, it's often fatal if it doesn't work. And, uh, on the other issues, it's all just very inflationary, but it is not getting easier to, uh, bring supply of these materials to the world. No, absolutely. It, it does seem to be one of those, uh, you know, stumbling blocks per se that, you know, impedes, um, you know, projects from being developed and ultimately, uh, you know, creates this, I don't know, for me anyways, this kind of bullish outlook for metals, considering how hard it is. Um, one of the other, so you guys have uh, a, a big position in potash royalties and, uh, you know, recently we saw the Canadian governments and Netherlands governments put or set nitrogen emission reductions over the course of the next seven years. Um, you know, I'm kind of ignorant to when it comes uh, to how exactly the three big fertilizers are used in conjunction with each other, you know, that being nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Um, but do you foresee nitrogen emission restrictions um, having the potential to impact potash demand uh, in any manner? Not particularly. I mean, those nutrients, yes, they're used in conjunction and, and you can vary the mix a little bit over short periods of time, but there's, there are essential primary nutrients that have to go in, in their, in their components. So I think maybe where you're going to is, uh, you know, just emissions from the production of nitrogen are certainly being heavily challenged and what spillovers are there to potash. So I, I don't see it directly, but generally speaking, broadly speaking, I think that well, decarbonization of the mining industry generally is a very, very real uh, force and factor as companies, the producers are, you know, are being uh, challenged to account for all of their emissions right through the right through the value chain. You know, these these are you're seeing it. You're seeing it across the industry. A lot of investment, uh, not in growth of, of new volumes, but in decarbonization of existing operations because these companies believe that they will 
ultimately have to pay uh, for the cost of that uh, of that carbon. So they're making the investments now to offset future uh, operating costs. So potash wouldn't be immune there. Um, I mean, you're seeing BHP announced with their Janssen project, for example, a fully electric fleet um, that adds pressures across the rest of the industry and in Canada. So yeah, it, it's just a factor going forward that um, the carbon that you produce at the mine site and even beyond um, is now part of the cost structure of winning these materials from the ground. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the interesting things, you know, Sri Lanka uh, decided to go completely organic. Um, I, I don't know if this was the last two years or the last year. And really, they tried not only um, did they try to do that, but they tried to do it in a short time frame. And it really ended up affecting their domestic food supply um, because, you know, it doesn't look like it maybe can be done on a, on a mass scale. Um, do you think that, you know, pushing the envelope in terms of, you know, where we go and how quickly we get there, does that ultimately come back to potentially haunt, you know, the industry? That's a, that's a tough one. You know, at what pace do you make these investments? Um, you know, it's interesting to hear analyst comments to Rio Tinto, for example, who has made some big investment announcements around, you know, changing their operations and, and you know, mainly focused on carbon and then trying to, you know, answer questions around, well, what's the return on investment there? And it's hard, right? Because what's the price I pay for the emissions that I produce if I don't make these and, you know, the, these pricing mechanisms are nascent and... Um, you know, how do investors respond to our best practices with lowering our cost of capital? They're, they're not easy, easy decisions, but look, we all know that there's enormous pressure to get this done yesterday. Yeah, well, so, you know, you, there, another situation that's kind of an offshoot, and I don't necessarily, well, I definitely wasn't intended, but with the Russian sanctions, you know, particularly in the nickel market, we saw a big spike in price and how the LME responded was by closing the market and, uh, you know, essentially creating a, a pause in trading. Um, and, you know, you, 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 we take what we just kind of spoke about and, you know, how these things potentially have, you know, they can spike metal prices quite quick when, you know, depending on how you want to restrict supply. Um, so do you think, you know, in terms of, you know, price is ultimately what dictates how supply comes on on hand, but they're also in the same token closing the market and um, preventing that price spike. So what is the best way to kind of deal with, you know, these price spikes or how the market is going to flow um, if if it really doesn't flow to where it might, you know, should be? Yeah, it's time frame that really is the key to that, the answer to that question. Like, obviously, the nickel price sorted itself out. Yeah. You know, blip, you won't even, you won't even remember what it was all about on a chart in not too long. But you will remember the fact that um, what's happened in, in Russia and Ukraine and Belarus has ultimately led to a deglobalization, if you will, of the supply chain for these materials. And you're really, really seeing it now in the form of various governments uh, really pushing their domestic uh, sourcing and supplying of these materials. And, um, you know, again, when, when you think about what these materials are expected to be really needed for, so broader sustainability initiatives and uh, decarbonization, which are, you know, big global challenges, that require pretty unified fronts. But on the other hand, you've now got, you know, a localization of supplying. 
these materials and premiums and discounts being applied depending on where materials are sourced. I think that's a lasting impact. Uh, you know, short was splashy and newsworthy in the moment when when the LME shut down and nickel prices shot up and some shorts got squeezed and all that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, it, it's just a tiny, tiny symptom of the real thing that was happening. So, you know, whether it's the Green Revolution, war in Europe, or the soaring amounts of government debt worldwide, it would seem to me that there are a lot of reasons to be bullish on the entire resource sector. Um, that said, things don't always go to, as planned. In your view, where or how could this seemingly bullish future for natural resources fall short? Again, it's time frame stuff, but what we know as fact, so start with the supply side, is that we're now over a decade out since there's been any kind of meaningful capital investment in replacement or uh, new supplies for these materials. That's a very long time in our business. And over that time frame, and certainly into the next few years, lots of supply will naturally come out of the market just because non-renewable resources uh, deplete. So that factor is there. Um, you know, I looked at copper and, you know, you go out two or three years and the current projection is that there's a six to eight million ton deficit loom just on, you know, normal supply or normal demand expectations and natural uh, attrition from existing mines. Don't forget your compounding growth, you know, in, in these commodities now against yeah. very big numbers. Um, so where the market doesn't go into critical shortfall, if you're talking about copper, is that you've got to see demand destruction at truly unprecedented levels. Okay. Beyond what any, you know, major recession has ever caused before. So that's the way the market balances. Other than that, we're screwed. Okay. Okay. Well, it's one of the things that I thought was interesting with this, you know, the COVID situation over the last couple of years. Um, you know, my like I work from home as it is, but I think a lot of my friends that I was talking to during the lockdowns, you know, they not only because of COVID, but they were almost seemingly starting to work more from home as it was. And, you know, how habitually they were changing their the way that they spent their money. Um, and I hear about EVs, you know, part of the green revolution. And, um, you know, Obviously, I think you're absolutely right that it has to be a dramatic difference to, you know, make a difference in the long-term future. But I wonder if people really are changing the way that they spend their money and, you know, drive their vehicles. You know, I think in the U.S., the number was something like three vehicles per family. Um, but do you foresee this, that changing, like how people operate in a business manner um, and whether that affects, you know, the green revolution and whether it's as, as, def as rosy as, as it might appear? I'm not an expert on, on if you get if you get to that level, but when I think about say EVs, renewables, these things that are meant to really put a lot of pressure on on you know the whole demand side of the equation, upwards pressure uh, going out in time. You could make the argument today that the whole sustainability drive and governments and individuals that it was a luxury of better economic times that people could afford it. So you know go for it. Yeah, we'll do that. We'll change the world. We'll save the planet, that sort of thing. And maybe because now things are tougher, inflation is here and there's not as much um, money to go around most uh, most households, well, that everybody lets off governments and individuals and everything else. But I don't, I don't think so. I think it actually passed that point that, um, you know, as far as EVs go, like the adoption trends are in place. They don't reverse when they start, right? I mean, 
and they, they, they hardly can even now because the vehicle manufacturers have already committed started they yeah. already changed over the plants it's it's done right so do you just go back to where you were 10 years ago no it just doesn't happen um and you know and even it's interesting to me because what we're going to is is there ultimately something wrong with the demand story going forward to me it's a bullish case if you've got normal demand growth over over time it's still extremely bullish just because of how poorly set up the supply side is yeah but if you do get those accelerations in demand from these mega trends um again we're screwed right screwed i mean as a consumer not necessarily as somebody who collects royalties on the, on the metals but you know more broadly speaking it's never healthy for anybody when, when things get out of whack too much right that's right um, so, but, you know, I found it really interesting recently because I, I really wondered about this. Like, does Europe stick to its, you know, guns here around uh, around uh, CO2 emissions and carbon pricing and all those kinds of things in the face of these other pressures? Um, you know, and in the U.S., okay, we got inflation. Well, are we going to actually push an agenda to to uh, decarbonize and, and drive renewables growth and build out the grids and all those sorts of things? I mean, it was it was incredible to me last week to see that bill get passed, but it didn't get passed because it was a climate bill. It was called the Inflation Reduction Bill. <laughs> but it got done, right? Yeah. But isn't it funny? Like, you know, in response to crisis, government spend. Yeah. Now, what they call it is one thing or another, but ultimately on the ground, where did the money go? It's for renewable energy build-outs, grid infrastructure, EV charging stations. Like, it, to me, it just feels more unstoppable than ever. If this doesn't stop it, if, if that sort of luxury element of you know that was there in terms of spending and, and conviction around decarbonization gets you know if inflation actually becomes a driver of that because of government stimulus like we're, we're the path is set yeah those are really good points um you know you at LTS always seems to be ahead of the curve. Uh, the most recent evidence is the formation of LTS Renewables, um, who are financing via royalty agreements wind and solar energy developments in North America. While renewable energy royalties are the baseline of the business, there does appear to be many other avenues to generate profit uh, from this growing sector of the market, such as carbon credits. Looking ahead, where do you see the biggest new royalty avenues uh, in the renewable sector? Well, for us, it's still the bread butter side of it. I mean, bread and butter in this case being still all fairly new but it's it's wind and solar and increasingly storage and as royalty players we're not ultimately ever going to you know financiers we're not going to drive that bus we're going to we're going to follow along and do our part and finance projects that make sense economically you know otherwise so with renewables i mean all the deal flow we're seeing is to come in and help support new builds of those types of projects, I can see in the future that as the business scales up and as, as uh, the market evolves, we could even be involved with more offshore wind type development. Batteries for sure are going to be a huge part of of what we finance. I know that because we're already working on the term sheets. So it's, um, you know, I let the market unfold as it's going to unfold and we just stay on top of the trends and stay in touch with the people that are financing things and coming up with solutions for them. Okay. One question, like I mentioned carbon credits and, you know, I think there's definitely a distinction between carbon credits and carbon sequester or sequestering. Um, which of the two do you think is the the bigger opportunity? I, I actually do see them as more linked perhaps. Like, uh, okay. 
you know, it's obviously reduction of carbon in your industrial or, or, or um, you know, domestic patterns and, and, and operations is going to be a big part of how we bring down, you know, carbon levels. But uh, sequestration is part of that. Now, what, what still needs to evolve here is more clarity in terms of what the cost of producing a ton of carbon is and what the value of sequestering a ton of carbon is. So the sequestration side, like, you know, Europe is leading the way, obviously, with pricing carbon. Um, Canada has is, is, is obviously um, put its systems in place. Uh, but how all of these things interplay, and so if you've got a project, well, we're invested in a company that just, in turn, invested in a, in a group that uh, injects CO2 into cement and it captures it, you know, essentially permanently. So right now, the price it can get for each ton of carbon that, that sequestered is based on voluntary market pricing. Okay. And what would somebody pay to offset their own emissions? But all this will standardize in time. And again, it'll come down to a steelmaker saying, okay, I either pay this much for every ton of carbon I produce as part of my cost structure for that ton of steel, or I buy a credit from somebody or invest in a project that that captures an equivalent amount. But that's where we're headed and, and probably more quickly than people than people think. It, it's a really it's a hard market to call. Like I can't look at a project and say, well, there's the price deck and there's the consensus price deck for the carbon that that's going to capture for the next 10 years or 15 years and model out a return on investment for it. Nobody can. Uh, you've got signals, you've got voluntary market pricing, um, which again goes to that whole luxury point. Do people buy that voluntary credit when when things are stressed or, or not? Yeah. And then there's more forced markets like in Europe and, and, and in Canada. Um, what I'm sure of, though, is that um, ultimately the value received for sequestering a ton of carbon will approximate the cost of producing a ton of, of CO2. So, you know, that's how all this plays out and evolves it will be a gargantuan market yeah I, I i bet it will be so i guess the way i separate the two is i look at it as one as a technology and the other as kind of the the offshoot of that technology so is the royalty aspect of of carbon credits or carbon sequester it's by funding uh the technology business to create these Carbon sequester, whether it's you know whether I don't know if you're talking about brucite, um, but these different um, ways to to sequester carbon is that that's where the royalty is. Yeah, well, in, in the case of say that investment we made with Invert, so what they are doing is backing projects that that sequester, okay. and in exchange, then they receive the carbon credit and sell it on. So that's you know that's how the you know the economics ultimately work. So they receive a percentage of the value of the sequestered carbon and no, no different than it. So, you know, the, the cement company captures X tons of carbon They receive X amount of, uh, or well, in this case, invert receives X amount of revenue for the, um, for that carbon. And that's, that's what the stream is based on. It's no different than selling a ton of copper and getting okay. your percentage of that. So okay. it's weird. Like when you mentioned things like brucite, so what you're talking about is more sort of a natural, geochemical processes where you've got minerals that naturally attract CO2 and form new minerals and permanently capture the CO2 is something we're kind of pretty interesting in, interested in, obviously, with our 
geological background and the fact yeah. that mine tailings in particular some particular deposit types are particularly attractive um you know for it so that's that's certainly an area that we're kind of zoning in on a bit just because i think it's more up our skill set than say yeah. um you know more forestation projects and those, and those kinds of things. And the other thing that we find really neat about the, the space overall is that, you know, these projects that ultimately are meant to capture carbon, whether it is biological or geochemical or whatever, they're going to be big footprint projects. They're going to have conflicts. This is a land use now in some ways that's going to compete with whatever it was before. So you're actually going to get into all the same challenges around access to land and permitting and, and I think it's just something that that's an area where our skill set, I think, might actually be be pretty helpful. And it means that as a ultimately a capital provider, we can be, I think, a pretty value adding partner to whomever it is that's actually got the technology or the idea or the or the access to land or tailings or whatever it might be. Because I think we can be a pretty thoughtful investor and, and supportive planner for, for those projects as well. We're actually looking at it as part of our, almost like a part of our project generation business. That makes a lot of sense. That, that's a really good point you bring Because it's interesting. I remember, I don't know if you recall, but over the first time I interviewed you, we talked to one of the companies that I liked was FPX Nickel. And uh, you had mentioned um, that Cliffs had basically, you know, asked Peter Bradshaw to do the exploration for, uh, I think it's, how do you say it? Out, wire right? Yeah, um, right. And so they, he got the West Coast and you guys kind of were on the, the East Coast. Yeah. And of course, he made the uh, the Dakar Baptiste deposit discovery. Um, but it's it's quite an interesting story. And I think, you know, although that it's low grade, I really think that, you know, the tailings producing brucite and the ability to sequester carbon, um, it, it could truly be the, the my, to my knowledge anyway, the mining industry's first, you know, carbon neutral project and that's without buying carbon credits or, or anything else. So I, I find it extremely uh, interesting. And I think you're absolutely right. That's kind of like, I think, you know, you, you seem, anytime I've talked to you, you've always talked about playing to your strengths and um, the connection there that you've made, I think is, is really good. And it's, it's something that investors should pay attention to um, because I think that's why you guys have been so successful is that, you know, ability to see where your strength is and, and play to it. One of the things we've done in project generation recently, so this is not in terms of just generating pure, you know, carbon capture type projects or sequestration projects. Generally speaking now, as part of our royalty agreements, when we vend out a project and we attach a royalty, uh, we've broadened the definition of gross revenue to include any uh, revenue associated with potential sequestration credits. Smart. It's going to be part of the. It's going to be part of the framework. It's only certain types of deposits. It's basically nickel and diamonds. I guess would be the. You, know, you want magnesium rich rocks generally because that's the mineral that uh, or the uh, that, that's what reacts and creates the new minerals. Oh wow, that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, the royalty space has changed dramatically over the last 10 years for good or ill. Uh, the biggest difference that I see is the dramatically increased number of royalty and streaming companies that are vying to acquire the same deals. You know, While the number of companies uh, may not change in the future, could the increase in interest rates be the perfect scenario for royalty and streaming companies to step in and be the preferred financier of mining projects? There's definitely that. I mean, whenever competing sources of capital become strained or averse, you know, it's it's typically been when you know royalty and streaming has, has done has done the best. Yeah. Now, you know, look, 
shifts in cost of capital go right through the sector, including the royalty companies in the, at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, look, if debt is becoming expensive or it's just, you know, really not wanting to, to play at any one point in time, you know, certainly royalties and streams get a chance to step in and probably even more dramatically would be, uh, would be equity. Like in the renewable space, we're certainly seeing it uh, just as an example. Five years ago, three or four years ago, when we were really getting off the ground, we found it really tough to make any kind of inroads with project developers because they had so much access to cheap debt, right? And yeah. so what we would have had to price at just wouldn't work, you know, low single-digit kinds of cost of capital. Um, but what that was underpinned by, and to a large extent, was um, the operators entering into quite long-term power purchase agreements. So basically locking out their price exposure. And for certain investors, particularly debt investors, they love to see that you know everything is hedged out. There's no commodity risk here. And so you could put a lot of leverage on those projects and they'd accept quite low uh, returns for that. Uh, fast forward, and in the past year, power prices have started to go up. Some of these hedges have shown to not actually serve their purposes of protecting you from price exposure. In fact, they've actually caused some companies to blow up pretty good. Um, and what you're getting is a, a, a more reluctance to lend, or you know, at least to put the same amount of leverage on a, on a renewable energy project. So there's an increased requirement for an equity check, or in our case, you know, to the extent that we can, we've been subbing in royalty financing for that that equity because the operators don't want to hedge. Yeah, to the same extent, or at least not all of their production, it means less leverage, which means more equity side, which means returns that, you know, we can get our heads around. And so it has opened up a huge opportunity. And again, it, it's like, you know, we, we get pretty welcome reception when our opening remarks to these companies are, we don't want you to hedge anything. And they're like, well, we've never heard of anybody like you guys. <laughs> Usually the pressure is, you know, what do you mean? You're only hedging 90%. That's we don't do 100, right? So... Major parallels there to the gold mining industry, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. The, the actual mining industry when, you know, all mines were ultimately built with all these hedges in place and it was the only way to go. And if you were a dinosaur, if you weren't doing it, and then all of a sudden things reversed very quickly. And the first question, question from any investor was, you know, what's your hedge book look like? And essentially, if you said you were hedged at all, you were almost non-investable overnight. Yeah. Um, and if you look back at that time frame, it coincides exactly with the rise of the royalty financing model in the mining industry. Oh, that's interesting. Like, and just for for viewers, uh, I, one of the examples that pops up in my head was just you know, but a month ago was G Mining in Franco, Nevada, and you know, the interesting thing is that Franco basically bought a, you know the, a royalty on the primary metal of the mine, which you know for a long time had this this stigma around it, right? Um, but in talking to the company and and learning more, it's not only a, a sign of the market, um, but the cost of capital was by far the cheapest from Franco. Nevada. And I just thought it was very interesting. And for investors that are looking, um, you know, they have to do more than just look at the headline or read the first paragraph of the deal, because in a lot of cases, it could make the most sense. Um, it just ran for the reasons that you outlined too. But I, I thought it was a very interesting kind of switch um, in the market. And it might be so in this kind of scenario, do you think you know, you guys like half, or I don't know if it's necessarily half, but a portion of your, the way you guys do business is project generation. Does when the, 
when the uh, the fundamentals change and you get this scenario where, you know, more projects may be looking to you guys for funding. Does that put any less focus on project generation or does project generation always have a prominent role in the Altius business model? There's always something to be done, no matter, I guess, you know, I guess we're kind of going to where just cyclical capital availability sits. So of course we were, you know, 2015, 2016, 2017, in the depths of, you know, the the beer market and all the previously incentivized supply kind of coming all at once. And everyone, you know, the whole mining industry looking like it was going to go bankrupt. Uh, we were extremely busy um, uh, putting together proposals and writing checks for, for existing operations at that point, you know, refinancing situations, those kinds of things. Uh, but we didn't let up on the project generation side either because, you know, with those same conditions, when you've got mining companies with very strained balance balance sheets because, you know, just the margins just aren't there at that moment in time. Well, by that point, already they've killed their expiration budget, and so lands have started to come open like crazy. So you can't – it's not an on or off with, with project generation. There's definitely a part of the cycle when I think we're more accumulators of lands yeah. and there's a time, you know, when juniors have access to capital. Uh, and have huge demand for projects that were, you know, net sellers of those lands. So it's definitely not either war between royalties and project generation for for us. And, and in fact, in some ways, you know, there's there's a time for planting and there's a time for harvesting, and then they do coincide largely. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of interesting projects in the Altius's royalty development pipeline. Um, arguably the most intriguing, um, and this is to me personally, is Anglo Gold's Ashanti Silicon project in Nevada. Um, you guys hold a one and a half percent NSR. Um, interestingly, uh, you know, roughly a third of your project generation equity portfolio has a precious metal focus. Um, Altius's current portfolio of producing royalties is exclusively base metal focused. Um, do you see this? Uh, do you foresee this changing in the future? Look, the reason we don't you don't see us aggressive or you know showing up and buying advanced stage precious metals royalties is that we're just not going to be competitive. Okay. We don't have the same equity cost of capital that the competitors typically do. And we have higher IRR hurdles. So you know, we're not going to be adding precious metals royalties to our portfolio through the MA channel. Uh, it's just an, an unrealistic it would be a destructive process for us. We're very confident in that. Um in project generation, though, it's completely different. You know, geology is geology and raw, raw, you know, raw lands and ideas are, they cost the same for precious metals targets or base metals targets. And in some ways, there's actually a, a larger customer base, if you will, for the precious metal side of things. More juniors can get involved with gold projects that couldn't really contemplate yeah. a porphyry deposit, for example. So of course we we focus you know gold is is fully fair game in our project generation business, and uh, it's you know it it represents a, a very healthy proportion of the projects that we generate, and probably an even greater proportion of the projects that we're successful in selling on to the to the to the market. So that's why we're there, and as part of that, we've found ourselves with an accumulation of royalties on projects that uh, are precious metals focused. Do they belong in the company long haul? You know, the successes, the ones that are going to work? Probably not. Okay. I mean, it doesn't hurt us. It's not going to hurt us to add gold royalty revenue to our copper and our potash or anything else. 
but is within our structure the place where it's going to you know achieve the highest value for shareholders and there i'd argue perhaps not so we are certainly entertaining ideas from the precious metals royalty players about our precious metals portfolio um you know whether it be sale or swap of, of precious metals uh, royalties for for base metal royalties any of those kinds of things are on the table so it's um, we're going to keep on creating precious metals royalties i don't see it necessarily though becoming you know a part of that pie chart that we show of our of our different commodity exposures on a cash flow basis yes it can build up in nav and it certainly is at the moment um yeah so that's that's what we're doing all that said you know is there a point where that differentiation where a dollar of revenue from a gold royalty trades at two times what a dollar revenue from copper royalty uh, does does that persist or does that change because if that math changed of course our thinking would change and you know we see it from you know even from some of the bigger precious metals royalty companies lately there's a lot more emphasis and talk around uh building up their exposure to non-precious metals commodities right yeah copper iron ore so the minute that begins i guess things start to blur a little bit and so that line between here's how i value a precious metals royalty and here's how i value a non-precious royalty you know it, it starts to shift so we're watching all of that too but that's more probably a longer term evolution i i do think that they the the, the gap shifts i mean obviously i hope it's because the diversified multiples go up <laughs> yeah. not necessarily because the precious metals or all these go, or, uh, premiums go down but uh it is an interesting trend to watch as the major players start to signal more and more um that a dollar from copper is just as good as a dollar from gold. Cool. Well, you know, it's interesting because Franco, you know, are probably one of the better examples of the big gold royalty companies diversifying out and going into oil. And wow, they look like geniuses now because of, you know, where, where we are. Um, but, you know, so my question, you know, I've never really have understood why the premium exists on the gold side of things. Do you have any insight into why they get or have gotten a premium in the past? I've racked my brain on that so many times that I've actually stopped trying, to be honest with you. <laughs> fundamentally, I don't see it. Like To me, what goes to the value of a royalty? It's it's the underlying asset, right? I mean, there's, yeah. the royalty is only as good as the asset that it's on. And this is a broad generalization, but you know, typically base metal mines are they're much, much more capital intensive and to offset that they typically have to have much bigger resource bases uh and, and more pathways potentially to life extensions and expansions and whereas a gold mine can be a pretty low, low capital undertaking it can be a relatively weak sponsor that can get one off the ground and just think about all the things i just said like what's yeah. supposed to make up a royalty valuable it's access to optionality in the form of you know long-term growth and expansions and long lives um isolation from capital intensity right so the more capital intensive an industry is the more beneficial notionally the royalty should be in my in my opinion yeah. it's got more more separation there so for all of those reasons logically and these reasons aren't different than what the precious metals royalties companies will espouse either like these yeah. are the same features that they say are what make royalties so valuable um you know again 
there's, there's there is no good reason for it it's it's whatever that aura of of the gold bug uh and what they're willing to pay for that dollar of, of, of revenue it's just looked at differently I, I don't know necessarily why but um you know and, and again look at the francos and the wheatons of the world like what have their big deals been in the past five years for the most part they are not pure precious metals mines they've gone kind of the same way it's just that they're buying the byproducts yeah. from big base metal mines now to get access to that you know that stronger counterparty that longer life that um better optionality yeah the lines true. will blur like they, they are blurring there's, there's that hard separation between you know i put this multiple cash flow and this nav multiple on a quality precious metal stream versus the same you know similar quality base metal stream doesn't logically persist in my mind. Yeah, I, I think that's especially true with this green revolution, like kind of what we were talking about earlier in the conversation. Um, as the uh, prestige, I guess, of the base metals increases too, I think people will place more value on it, you know, moving forward. But, you know, we'll see. Um, so another question about your backyard. Uh, Newfoundland has been one of the hottest destinations for gold exploration over the last couple of years. And this is, you know, a couple of discoveries in particular. Uh, in your view, does this gold rush continue or was that just a flash in the pan? You know, you go back a few years. I'll go back to late 90s, early 2000s when we were forming and we were, you know, working in that same region. And we, we dubbed this area. We had this play called the Botwood Basin and basically covered a lot of the same real estate and so some of the discoveries we made back then are actually you know some of the ones that are being advanced along right now um so it's been a long stretch but it does take you know a long time for yeah. the belts to evolve you know marathon getting over the line and getting to production would would change things a lot for that belt because once you've got that head frame yeah. in the region you know it just keeps things moving through the ups and the downs and you don't you know big boom and barracks and agnicos and everyone coming in and then all of a sudden everyone's gone and then they're back again and gone like it, it just adds that stability i have little doubt that there's a series of mines in that belt to be developed over the next 10 15 20 years yeah there's too much gold there are they easy no way <laughs> not easy mines these are structurally it's a really structurally complex region um but that's getting better understood now like that that whole I mean, we were shooting in the dark back in back then. I mean, we were seeing these structures, and it was just it was hard to get your head around. But as as data is built up from one project and spilled over into the next and into the next, things are getting more predictive. And and obviously, what it has going for it is, um, I mean, some real jewelry box type stuff uh, mixed in. So that 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 always that always helps. But yes, structurally complex but incredibly well endowed and becoming much better understood pretty quickly. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic. I'll see lots of head frames out there. <laughs> Very good. Um, so we ended our last conversation with a rapid fire look at a number of metals. Um, I give you the resource and you answer with whatever best describes your outlook. Uh, are you game for that? Sure, go for it. Okay. Do uh, I get any free passes? <laughs> you do. You can pass <laughs> if you'd like. Uh, copper. Nowhere to go but up. The world needs this stuff and an awful lot more of it than we're ready to give it right now. Forget the short-term supply demand, six weeks, six months. If you think of this thing from anywhere from two to 10 years, I really think that copper will be one of the true limiting factors to the world achieving its ambition. 
uh, for you know sustainability shifts. I just don't think without something really dramatic happening that there's anywhere near enough of it ready to come to the market. Very good. Nickel? Um, maybe a little less bullish. I really like nickel sulfide, um, but you can't ignore the fact that there's been so much incremental production from from Southeast Asia. Uh, so it'll be really telling now in the next little bit that whether the end users, and you know, in many ways you're talking about batteries going forward, discriminate between you know sources and the carbon footprint. You know, does the carbon footprint, for example, of, of Indonesian production start to get priced into the overall price? If that's the case, yeah, I'm 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 very bullish. But I definitely see the end users, whether it's uh, utility scale battery storage or even car manufacturers, being quite selective about you know and even directly investing in projects nickel sulfide in good jurisdictions i'm extraordinarily bullish on zinc don't have a super strong view one way or the other it's um i mean i I know right now the challenges are in the um more in the downstream side because it's a pretty energy intensive finished product um Supply demand, I guess I'd say I'm kind of neutral. I think there is a fair bit of relatively low-hanging fruit in the zinc world that can be developed with sustained price incentives. So do I see like, you know, a crisis the way that I see, like I have no idea where the copper is going to come from. Like I literally have no idea. Whereas with zinc, if you say, give me that price, I can say, yeah, yeah, I can see that happen. That'll come on. That'll come on. Yeah. Uranium. Logically, it really should be, you know, the outlook there should be extremely bullish. I mean, it's just such a logical form of baseload power going forward. And we are seeing some some shifts, I guess, with Europe changing how it, it labels, you know, nuclear power, probably out of you know, a forced hand more than a real desire to do so yeah can really change that that demand narrative but again you know a year ago or so i would have said makes all the scientific sense in the world to me but what when i look to you know where capital wants to go i mean i might as well be trying to you know buy a tobacco company instead of uranium <laughs> or a nuclear power plant right now just because capital was just shunning it yeah I think it was one of the biggest screens negative screens for for you know sort of most investment funds that it really became challenging. Um, so I'm bullish on the demand side, but I also think there's a pile of supply that can come on as well. And those that have it are extraordinarily well positioned. So like some of these new hot grade plays in Saskatchewan, I, I'm sure that, you know, there, there's a lot of uranium that was found last cycle. Yeah. And it can be brought on, takes time and it's tough. Um, so I'm a I'm a bull I'm a bull long term, and you have to be long term if you even mention the word uranium. <laughs> you say long term in copper, it's ten years. You say uranium is thirty. So, but long term, yes. How about iron ore? Iron ore is not one market anymore. It's several. It's, it's bifurcated into component parts. I mean, this is obviously the most traded mined yeah. commodity in the world by far. Um, last cycle. Lots of incentivization and new production, mainly out of Australia. 
But what it was was lower quality material than the previous generation of mine. So you brought the average quality down overall of iron ore produced in the world on one hand. Uh, and now on the other hand, you're pricing in the carbon footprint. So that low purity iron ore, which there's more now than there used to be, also has a higher carbon footprint, which is part of the cost structure. So I'd be neutral to negative on low quality, probably relatively neutral on on uh, benchmark 62 and extraordinarily bullish on the high quality end. Uh, and you only have to look to... So you could actually be negative on overall global steelmaking usage. You could have a negative view on that, that it, it's flat to down from here and still be bullish on the high quality end because... Again, track ahead. Nobody is investing in blast furnaces at the moment, which are the ones that you put the coal into and you can run the low grade with. Uh, all of the new investment in steel making in the world, future looking, is electric arc furnaces. Yeah. Uh, and for that, you need the super high quality. So market share to the high quality end because um, you've got a price in the, the carbon footprint. Very good. Gold. Pass. <laughs> no so, clue. Yeah. It doesn't have anything to do with supply and demand. Uh, <laughs> it's not a supply demand commodity that I can tell. It's it's a financial um, commodity, and I, there's just too many factors there. But um, you know, it's obviously important. I wish I had a better handle on it because, in some ways, the gold market really some exuberance there often drives the cost of capital across the whole complex, particularly for the junior. So it has big implications, you know, right through the, the sector. It just has that kind of, it brings out the speculator like nothing else, right? So yeah. it, it does have big, big impacts, but um, I own a bunch, but I don't <laughs> have a clue where the price is going. How about silver? Silver, Probably more bullish just because of the industrial side of things. And then, you know, I'm obviously talking to groups that have ambitions around solar panels and those sorts of things. And then it's just, I think an awful lot more of it's going to get used in the world than people necessarily think right now. Um, but again, it has that financial element to it as well. that gives me caution about, about pricing, but, you know, is there enormous future demand ahead for silver in industrial processes? I can easily buy that argument. Okay. I know it because our royalty financing is going into people buying panels that are, they're, they're all complaining to me because, you know, what's going to happen with this silver price and this <laughs> copper price? Cause it's really causing havoc with our budgets here and our plans. And I mean, I've talked to pretty large utilities, you know, we're new board members or whatnot and came in and like, that's the question. We've got a capital budget for the next, whatever, four or five years here. And at the moment, everything's out the window because we have no idea what the raw materials for these products are going to cost us. Jeez. Well, those are excellent answers. And uh, I really appreciate you going through those metals. Uh, guys, if you have any questions, please leave them in the comments below and we'll get back to you um, as soon as we can. Altius's website is altiusminerals.com and trades on the TSX under the ticker ALS and on the OTCQX under ATUSF. Um, Brian, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks.
The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10 for 1 returns as there is in small cap and micro cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.